Coming up on Tech Nation, you have no idea how important ideas are in your life and just how many you'll need. Jeremy Utley, the Director of Executive Education at Stanford University's D School, joins me to talk about his book, Idea Flow. Then in biotech, human clinical trials have begun to treat a particular type of epilepsy called temporal lobe epilepsy. Dr. Corey Nicholas from Neurona Therapeutics tells us about their big idea, how they have developed an unprecedented cell therapy, and how they have now administered it to their very first subject. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is five minutes. In 2010, I spoke with Stanford professor Bob Sutton about his book, Good Boss, Bad Boss, How to Be the Best and Learn from the Worst. Reading his book, I realized that 90% of us have bosses. In fact, there are somewhere between 20 and 30 million bosses in the U.S. alone. Yeah, well, there's a lot of people who wield authority over other people. And if you think about how the hierarchy in an organization works, it just happens naturally. And that's some people say, I want a world without bosses. Well, it turns out if you put two, especially three people together or chimps or cats, you get a pecking order. It's just one of those things that everybody wants to dream there's going to be in a bossless world. But the fact is, it's, I guess it's the way that we're wired, is that um, whether it's formal or informal, a pecking order emerges, and most of us are bosses or have to deal with them. That's sort of our lot in life is to deal with authority relationships. Well, we even think that the, you know, the president of the company, so you know, they're in charge of everything. They have to report to a board of directors. They have to report to the board of directors, yeah. And so everybody's got a boss. And, yeah, and the managing boards is its own special sort of weird little thing. Yeah. But uh, in, speaking of CEOs, and I don't know exactly where we're going, but one of the things that's actually sort of cool, there's some research coming out showing that uh, – that they matter some, but what really matters is sort of like the bosses they breed and create, especially their top management team. So even even in that case, you know. Your spawn is what's important. Your spawn. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> we know we just had a major shakeup at a big technology firm, Hewlett Packard. Right. A president and CEO who had done remarkable things in the years he was there, did a lot for this company. Mark Hurd, out on his keister. Yeah, so that's that's interesting. And in, in fact, so the story about Mark Hurd, who is uh, CEO of Hewlett-Packard, which is the largest seller of um, personal computers in the world. And, and Mark, in, under his leadership, did a fantastic job of cutting costs, slashing costs through layoffs and other cost reductions. So they're incredibly profitable, leading PC maker, leading printer maker. So the numbers look great. But somewhere along the line, there was a little scandal. And we can't tell exactly what happened because uh, some money was paid where there was a woman who accused him of sexual harassment and got a bunch of money from him. And somewhere along the line, he did something that he even admitted was unethical with his expense account to cover dinners and stuff with her. So he got fired somewhere in the process. And any of us who've been involved in the backstage of a firing, not necessarily a CEO, there's the stuff that people can say and there's stuff they can't say. So, so nobody, there's more. It's got to be more. It's got to be more. Nobody knows what happened. But the interesting thing about Mark Hurd from the perspective of power for any boss, ranging from a first-line supervisor to a CEO, is there something 
uh, called power poisoning. You really got to be careful of. We've got a couple hundred academic studies that show that when you give people positions of power, three things happen to them. They become more focused on their own needs. Um, they become less focused on the needs of others, and they act like the rules don't apply to them. And I suspect that uh, it all happened. It all, and, and the more <laughs> famous, and the, so Mark heard much ballyhooed, very powerful. The inside reports I have from HP, quite a severe um, jerk. In fact, they the, the argument was he kept hiring and breeding mini marks. They called them, who were so so. There might have been some of that going on, but why he got fired, we can't really know because there's so many non-disclosures and so much money obviously passed hands. The thing that happened to Mark Hurd is something that every supervisor at every level has to be careful of, this really consistent thing of power poisoning, that it goes to your head, you don't realize it's happening to you, it's amazing how clueless and oblivious it makes you, and then on sort of the other side of this, and this is, if there's a main point, the main point of good boss, bad boss is, this is happening to you while the best bosses are actually ways who find, people who found ways to overcome that so they can be in tune with the people they lead, which is not an easy thing to do. You've been listening to a 2010 Tech Nation interview with Stanford professor Bob Sutton about his book, Good Boss, Bad Boss. He continues to be a Stanford professor, and the name of his latest book, well, we can't actually tell you the name of his latest book on air, but the subtitle is How to Deal with People Who Treat You Like Dirt. I'm Moira Khan. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, ideas, ideas, and more ideas. How to get them, why we need them, and how to get everyone around you brimming with new ones. Jeremy Utley, the Director of Executive Education at Stanford University's D School, joins me to talk about idea flow. Then in biotech, a new cell therapy just entering human clinical trials. It focuses on a particular type of epilepsy temporal lobe epilepsy. I speak with Dr. Corey Nicholas, the co-founder and CEO of Neurona Therapeutics, about their idea, what they've done, and how they plan to approach testing this unprecedented treatment. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global, on the web at mindk.com. And now, Jeremy Utley. Jeremy, welcome to Tech Nation. Thanks for having me. Well, it seems to me that everyone needs ideas, you know, from the workplace to challenges at home to sometimes getting yourself in a tough spot or even making the most of an opportunity. It seems to me that generating a bunch of different ideas yeah. is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Ideas are solutions to future problems. And so being fluent in the ways of generating solutions is something that is important for all of us, whether we're, you know, developing products for customers or whether we are developing uh, dinner for extended family. Ideas are the lifeblood of solutions to problems we face. 
Now, whenever we talk about generating new ideas, people are always talking about creativity. It just yeah. seeps in. Yeah. And uh, you uh, quote a seventh grader. I love this. This is on the first page. A seventh grader in Ohio. Creativity is doing more than the first thing that comes to your mind. Yeah, it's a profoundly simple definition. Um, and I like it for two reasons. One, it doesn't have any regard for field or function or discipline, right? A lot of times we think of creativity, we think of artistry. And I love that seventh graders definition because it doesn't have anything to do with the arts. It's, it has to do with a disposition towards volume, you could say, a disposition towards generating options. The second reason I like that definition so much is it speaks to a profound cognitive bias that every human being faces, which is known as the Einstein effect, right? I like to refer to it as the anti-Einstein effect, but what Carl Dunker found or what Abraham Luchens and researchers at Oxford have discovered is that human beings, when we identify a solution to a problem, two things happen. One, we stop the search for other solutions. And two, we're prevented from seeing better solutions. I do that with Wordle. I do it with Wordle all the time. <laughs> okay. You get it, right? So it goes all the way down to Wordle, all the way down to our recreation, right? But this tendency to fixate on one solution, by the way, there's no evidence to suggest that the first solution we think of is the best solution. None whatsoever. In fact, much to the contrary, but that's why this seventh graders definition is so great. If you want to be creative, do more than the first thing that comes to your mind. Now, you write that ideas start to flow when you've identified a clear problem. Where do people run into problems identifying the problem? Yeah, oftentimes the problem is the problem, so to speak. Um, meaning many times we're, we are in organizations, especially if you think about a lot of the solutions that teams may be considering implementing or attempting to implement, there's often an obsession with the technology, but without an awareness of the problem that's being solved. It's like a hammer searching for a nail. And we got to do this. We got to do this. It's going to be great. And then we do it. And there's this big flop. And what we realize only too late is we actually didn't know what problem we were solving. And so we talk about as John Dewey once said, a problem well put is half solved. And we talk about innovation process, framing and articulating a problem is every bit as meaningful an output of the process as the solution is. And if a team gets good at recognizing where are we lacking right now? Are we lacking in terms of problems worth solving? Well, let's start there and let's leverage tools to identify problems we're solving. Or do we have a really great problem, but we're lacking in terms of solutions to that problem? Well, we have tools to generate a volume of, to flood that problem with possibilities, right? Or are we lacking conviction? We actually think we know a problem and we think we know a solution, but they're kind of hypotheses. Well, we've got a suite of tools to help test those hypotheses, right? But giving that language to folks, I, I'll never forget a, a senior leader of, of a very large tech firm here in Silicon Valley was in one of our classes at Stanford. And after my lecture, she came up to me and she said, okay, hang on. You're telling me there's two big outputs to the innovation process. One is the solution, which I get, but the other output is the problem. And I said, yeah, that's right. You got it. And she said, cool. <laughs> she said, that's not how we do it at this firm. We're always thinking about the solution. We've, I've never realized that a problem well put is a meaningful output itself and really helps guide an innovation team's efforts. Now, I've been a bit disingenuous here because there's more to the quote. Ideas start to flow when you've identified a clear problem and gathered sufficient raw material 
for the brain mm. to do its job. Yes. So the brain is at the ready to solve problems. We don't have to ask it to. Well, that's a complicated question, but I would say the first thing is, again, when we think of creativity, most people think in terms of output. That is a misconception though. We actually believe creativity is a function of curated inputs and being thoughtful about the inputs to one's thinking. Your, the inputs to your thinking drive the outputs of your thinking. And so for a lot of people, if you recognize your goal is to be creative, to do more than the first thing you think of, well, how do you do it? One simple lever is to be thoughtful about what are the inputs to my thinking? You know, designers have a word for this. It's called inspiration. You know, in business, inspiration means some cheesy poster that, that's got like a salmon swimming into a grizzly bear's mouth and it says courage, right? That's what we think of inspiration. But designers don't think about inspiration that way. I mean, my wife is a fashion designer for a kids wear company. And she, you know, when I met her, she said she had to go to Paris on an inspiration trip. And I'm like, this is a boondoggle. You just want macarons. You know, this is absurd because <laughs> as a financial analyst, right, I'm, I'm trained in the pivot table and net present value calculations and spreadsheets. I don't know where to put inspiration. What cell does inspiration go in? It didn't make sense to me. But when I see the kind of freshness that such a trip brought to her thinking about textiles and colors and textures and patterns, et cetera, I started to appreciate she means something different from inspiration than I do. Okay. And so, and then I've been now teaching at the D school the last 13 years. And I've seen a lot of our methods have to do with giving folks language for gathering inputs to their thinking, to being inspired. And I'll never forget, this is probably two years ago. I was teaching a class with a hip hop legend named Lecrae. It's a Grammy award winning hip hop artist. He and I are teaching a class and we're giving a bunch of business school and law school and engineering students an assignment to go get inspiration. And as I look into the classroom, I can see these blank stares that are almost like looking in a time warp mirror when my wife told me she was going to Paris <laughs> for inspiration. And I can see they're just like, D inspo what? You know? And I asked Lecrae, I said, Lecrae, how do you think about inspiration? Because he's clearly the, you know, the creative genius in the room. He's clearly the one with credibility. And I said, Lecrae, how do you think about inspiration as a performer? And he said, as only a hip hop artist can do, he just dropped a bar. He said, inspiration's a discipline. And it registered with me in that moment for myself, you know, 10 years prior and for all these students, it's not even on my radar as a thing let alone a routine part of my life. But for someone who sees their job, he's in the creative arts, right? So he sees his job as coming up with creative ideas. He is disciplined about seeking unexpected input. And I think for any person in, in business, any person solving problems to recognize Part of the challenge in solving a problem is a question of input. It's a challenge of input. And do you have an instinct to go get unexpected sources of inspiration? That's what we call the inspiration discipline, the, the discipline pursuit of unexpected inputs. Now, in traditional management, all efforts seem to prioritize this error-free efficiency, which runs counter to creativity and wide open thinking. Why can't we just come up with the right best answer the first time? Yeah. Well, when we are solving a problem, there's no way to a priori prove the merits of a new idea, you know? And so what, what research suggests is that teams who generate several ideas are incapable of selecting their highest potential idea. 
as evaluated by external objective third parties. They don't select their highest potential idea. And so why would you ever do just one thing? Why would you ever just try one thing? Because if you know your tendency is to select a lower potential idea, a, a very sensible thing to do is to say, well, we should probably try more than one thing. We, we call that commissioning a portfolio. You think about it in finance, again, not to, not to belabor a financial analogy, but as a finance guy, you, you think about a balanced portfolio. You need some municipal bonds. You need some domestic equities. You need some international exposure, different asset classes. We get that. Well, innovation is a numbers game, just like finance is a numbers game. Innovation is a numbers game. And the a priori probabilities of innovation, if you're a nerd like me and like Bayesian statistics, a priori probabilities matter a lot. And the a priori probability of any one idea succeeding is exceptionally low. That's what people don't realize. We can talk about the idea ratio in a minute if you'd like. But suffice it to say, the a priori probability of any idea being a commercially viable new innovation is very low. And so what is a sensible manager to do? Well, I asked a PhD math student in my leadership class, if you know that your odds of, of success are one in 10, how do you guarantee success? And he said, well, this isn't really, doesn't require a PhD in math, but you've got to do more than 10 <laughs> things to guarantee success, right? It's just a math problem, right? And you go, wow. Well, so if a manager knows that their odds of success when it comes to an innovative new service or product are very low, how do they guarantee it? Well, they do a lot of things, not because all of them will work, but because it bends the odds that one of them will work. And then to your question, that means the majority of things won't work. Well, what happens when things don't work? Do people get fired? Is it a career limiting thing that happens? Or do they get celebrated and high-fived and on to the next project because you contributed an essential component of this portfolio of knowledge that we've created together? You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Jeremy Utley, the Director of Executive Education at Stanford University's D-School and an adjunct professor at Stanford School of Engineering. With Perry Claibon, he's written Idea Flow, the only business metric that counts. Well, okay, what's the idea ratio? Okay, so if you ask yourself... How many ideas do I need to have a good idea? Linus Pauling, who's the only individual in history to win the Nobel Prize as an individual twice. I realize Madame, Madame Curie also won twice, but as a member of a team. I know listeners to this podcast are going to, you know, they're going to fact check me. Pauling's the only one to win it as an individual twice. Don't worry. I know that because many, many years ago, he was the fourth guest Stop on Tech it. Nation. And I actually said the same thing no. on air. And so his birthday, 93 years old, got to wish him happy birthday, got lucky, got lucky. Yeah. That's so no argument amazing. here. Okay, so, no argument here. So by the way, so Pauling was neck and neck with Watson and Crick in discovering the double helix structure of DNA, right? He would have had a third Nobel had he won that race. My point is he's an exceptionally breakthrough thinker. And someone asked him once, Linus, I don't, I assume they call him Linus. I don't know, Dr. Pauling or whatever. How do you have so many good ideas? And he had a profoundly simple, similar to the, you know, seventh graders definition of creativity, a profoundly simple response. He said, it's easy to have a good idea. You need to have a lot of ideas. And the question that I often ask students and executives and professionals and workshops and conferences and things like that is define a lot. If Pauling's statement is right, to have a good idea, you need to have a lot of ideas. Then the question is, how many is a lot? And as I do kind of straw polling around the nation, or around the world for that matter, 
My observation is most people, you know, some people say you need 10 ideas to have a good idea or you need 20 or you need 50 or a, a bold person will say you need 100 or 200 ideas. And what's astounding is we actually have research at Stanford. We have empirical evidence about how to answer that question. And the number shocks people. My colleague, Bob Sutton in the School of Management Sciences and Engineering and his PhD student at the time, Andy Harganon, did a longitudinal study of an innovative organization, and they found that they needed 2,000 ideas to have one commercial success. 2,000. And there's a nice funnel that we, we kind of document in the book, but the basic idea is you go from 2,000 ideas to 100 prototypes to five products in market to one of those products ultimately being commercially successful. And the funnel really accords with our kind of understanding if we think about the, the stages of that funnel. But what few people really appreciate is, you know, the person who says you need 20 ideas to get a good idea is off by multiple orders of magnitude. Not just one, multiple orders of magnitude. And, and by the way, the mileage may vary across disciplines, but basically the same principle recurs in every field, right? In pharmaceutical discovery, the number's more like 10,000 to one. When James Dyson was inventing the first bagless vacuum, he made 5,127 prototypes of it before he got it right. Okay. Um, I saw an interview with the Taco Bell food lab and she said, the director of the food lab said, she tried over 2,000 different variants of the Doritos Locos taco shell before they got it right, okay? <laughs> so, which is just, I mean, imagine your life if you're eating that many taco shells, right? You've either won or lost very badly. I don't know. But the point is, the volume of ideas required to get to a commercially viable output is much higher than most people realize. And a simple way of saying it is, how many good ideas do you need to have? Or sorry, how many ideas do you need to have to have a good idea? The answer is, a lot more than you think. And so the question is, how do I generate a lot more ideas than I think I need? And that's really at the heart of idea flow, helping people generate a lot more than they think they need, because really that's what they need to ultimately be successful. You mentioned failure and we always say, Hey, in Silicon Valley, we eat failure for breakfast, you know, and then we pick ourselves up and we go forward. This is not true in so many places around the world, in so many organizations here and everywhere. Uh, how do you think about this in terms of yourself? And how do you think about it in terms of your team or your organization, whoever you're around and trying to get something done with? Yeah, I think that it, ultimately it's it's about learning, right? Failing is about learning. You know, Thomas Edison's famous quip, we actually quoted at length in the in the book. You know, his his friend Mallory came in and said, "Aren't you discouraged? I mean, you have all this work and you don't have any results." And Edison said, "Results, man, I've got results. I know several thousand things that don't work, right? Which you could think about that as failures, but Thomas Edison saw them as results." Those are results. And if you think about the scientific method, for example, the, the only way to know something is a law. And by the way, I'm going to get out of my, you know, uh, out of my depth pretty quickly here. So I won't go too deeply, but the only way to know something is a law is you can't disprove it. Disproving a null hypothesis is actually the point is to say what it's not. And so you think about disqualifying ideas to get to the thing that you can't disqualify. It's necessary. It's part and parcel of the discovery process that you're finding blind alleys. You know, when, um, when Poincaré was asked about Albert Einstein in the you know early 1900s, he said, I don't expect much. I mean, the fellow goes down far too many blind alleys, right? But the thing is, 
you have to be willing to entertain blind alleys to get to somewhere you never could have imagined or somewhere you never could have seen. And it's the acknowledgement that the innovation process is fraught with unknowns and uncertainties. And the only way to turn unknowns into knowns is to have an exploratory, experimental mindset. And experiments are often accompanied by failures, but it's on to the next. It's that mindset of I'm on to the next. And that's actually what is required to get to breakthrough. One of the most um, breakthrough leaders that I know is a fellow named Philippe Barreau. He runs Michelin's Innovation Lab in South Carolina. So he's out of Silicon Valley, but he's drank the Kool-Aid, I suppose. But he's a French national who uh, ran Michelin's accelerator in China for several years. Now he runs the innovation lab in South Carolina, which listeners can look up why they might be located in South Carolina. I'll leave it to folks to discover. It's a little Easter egg there. But what Philippe does is he sets a minimum failure threshold for his organization. You know, you think about how radically different that is. Most people say this is the maximum failure allowed. If you fail more than this, you, you are punished. He has a minimum failure threshold for his organization, meaning if we fail less than this, we're punished. Because he knows what? If we aren't failing a certain percentage of the time, we aren't exploring broadly enough. We're playing it safe. And our job in the innovation lab isn't to play it safe. It's to push the boundaries and to establish new, you know, new horizons, et cetera, right? But having that orientation, when you are exploring, it will be accompanied by failure, which provides incredibly valuable learning. Now, typically, even if you've generated a whole bunch of ideas, then you sit down and you figure out what are the best ones, and we're going to pick the mm. best ones and maybe do a few tests and then, then have a, a beauty contest and a winner, you know, and a runner-up. Uh, and yet you talk about Nolan Bushnell, the founder of Atari. We all know Atari. And he did it differently. The teams made these huge lists, and then they said, okay, pick the worst six ideas and ask how do we make them work? Yeah. Why? What was that about? Well, that's it's it's actually a fantastic way of of um, obliterating cognitive barrier, associative barriers. So our expertise starts to form chains of association. You know, if I say concussion, you think of something, right? You think of I don't I don't know what you think of, right? If I say technology, you think of something. We have these chains of association. And it, it's true in organizations, true, and it's particularly true of our expertise. Chains of association get formed. And as Steve Jobs said once, we don't realize it, but like records, our thinking can kind of get stuck in a rut. It can get stuck in the groove. And so there are really elegant ways, like Nolan Bushnell's tactic there, of kind of forcing our thinking out of a groove. And one way to do it, we call it reversing polarity in the book, but one way to do it is to say, let's start with the worst ideas. If they were the only thing we could do, how would we make them great? What will we do, right? You can also do something where you take an aggressor posture. You know, most of the time, innovation challenges are framed in terms of how can we save the company? But a different way to do it is to say, well, how would a competitor kill our company? What would they do to put us out of business? And it just, it's a way of disrupting your chains of association and creating new connection and unexpected connections. Aerosmith famously has dare to suck meetings where once a month, every band member has to bring a terrible idea. <laughs> and as Steven Tyler said, you know, most of the time they're really terrible, but every once in a while you get a dude looks like a lady, you know, and it's creating the space. And I think what Bushnell has done there is it's not the only way of generating ideas, but every once in a while taking a radically different posture 
sometimes triggers a connection that never could have been reached because of the rigidity of our conventional ways of thinking. Jeremy Utley is the Director of Executive Education at Stanford University's D School and the author of Idea Flow, the only business metric that matters. We'll talk more after a break. Biotech Nation podcast can be found individually at www.biotechnation.com and separately subscribe through your favorite podcaster, including Amazon. Podcast of the entire Tech Nation program continues to be available on NPR One and other podcast outlets. In the second half of our show, temporal lobe epilepsy and a new cell therapy now being tested in human clinical trials. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation. I'm speaking with Jeremy Utley, the co author of Idea Flow, the only business metric that matters. Ari Kruglowski is a psychologist who determined that one of the most distressing phenomena a human being experiences is unresolved questions. And so, he's, as he said, we are always seeking what he called cognitive closure. Think about what cognitive closure means it's a mind that is closed. We are all closed minded by nature, right? Naturally, you know, I hear people say all the time, by the way, I'm an ideas guy. I'm an ideas gal. And I'd say politely, respectfully, no, you're not. You're an idea gal. And that's true of all of us, right? I just want the one answer. You know, everywhere I go in the world, I mean, as an example, it doesn't matter if it's Tokyo or Tel Aviv or Topeka, those, they're, they're radical differences in culture, obviously, but universally, if I go and I start a workshop and somebody says, Hey, what are we going to do? I say, I'm going to help you come up with ideas. I get the same response regardless of culture. Do you know what it is? We have plenty of ideas. Well, that, that actually uh, many people do say that. Um, the first thing they say is how do you come up with a good idea? They want a good one. A good one. Well, who said me? Who said anything about good? I didn't say I help you come up with a good idea. I said I'm going to help you come up with ideas. But for people, for most people, the 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 notion of an idea is inseparable from the notion of quality, 
right? When we think of ideas, we think of good ideas. And if you, and if I tell you, Hey, your job is to come up with a hundred ideas, you freeze like, you know, like a, like a, like a, you know, like someone who's encountered by a saber toothed tiger, because you think it's impossible to come up with good ideas on the spot. How do I, I say, well, I didn't say good ideas. I said ideas, come up with ideas. And what very few people realize, you know, Steve Jobs was, was a legend at this. When we think of innovation, we think of Steve Jobs. When we don't think of bad ideas, right? We think of disruption and redefining categories and customer delight. But Steve Jobs, as Sir Johnny Ive tells the story, every day they'd sit down at lunch. And what Johnny said was, Steve would say to me every day, hey, Johnny, want to hear a dopey idea? <laughs> And Johnny said most of the time they were pretty dopey. In fact, sometimes they were truly terrible. But every once in a while, they take the air out of the room and leave us breathless in wonder, right? <laughs> as only Sir Johnny Ive can say. And the point there is Steve Jobs knew what very few people do, which is if you want to get to disruption, you got to be willing to be dopey. If you want to delight customers, you got to share dopey ideas with your colleagues. And Steve Jobs was rigorous. I mean, Sir Johnny Ive in that memorial that he gave at, at Jobs Passing said, Steve had a profound reverence for the creative process. And how was that reverence manifested? It wasn't manifested in he was maniacal and focused, laser focused on only good ideas. No, it meant regularly he was sharing what he thought might be pretty dopey ideas. Because that's how that's how reverence for the creative process is actually manifested. Well, Jeremy, uh, thank you so much for coming in. I've got about eight more questions here. Not getting to them today. I love it. <laughs> let's do it. Let's do another episode. There you no go. Problem. There you go. And I do hope you come back and see us again. I'd love to. I'd love to. Jeremy Utley is the director of executive education at Stanford University's D School, with co-author Perry Claybon. They've written Idea Flow the only business metric that matters. A free bonus chapter, How to Think Like Bezos and Jobs, is available at their book's website, ideaflow.design. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Epilepsy, temporal lobe epilepsy to be precise, also referred to as TLE. It can be extremely difficult to treat. Neurona Therapeutics had a theory about what might help these patients. They've developed an unprecedented cell therapy, and while very early in human clinical trials, the very first subject to be administered the drug has shown remarkable improvement. We'll talk about the medical condition, their theory of the disorder, what Neurona has done, and the ongoing clinical trials. Dr. Corey Nicholas is the co-founder and CEO of Neurona Therapeutics. Dr. Nicholas, welcome to the program. Hi there, Moya. Thanks for having me. Now, before we get to the work Neurona is doing, let's start with the disease you're focused on, epilepsy. Who has it? How many people have it? What causes it? What treatments are currently available? So epilepsy is the fourth most common neurological disorder affecting more than 3 million Americans. That's a disease characterized by epileptic seizures, which are hyperactive electrical signals that are being transmitted through the brain. Um, and, and they affect the brain in different ways. Um, and there are two main types of epilepsies. Uh, one is called focal onset 
which is uh, where seizures start in one part of the brain before they spread. And the other is uh, generalized onset, where they start across the brain all at once. And then there's a type in the middle where it starts focal and then spreads. And so you, there are many different uh, classes of epilepsies and seizures by virtue of where the seizures began and how they began and where they spread. What causes epilepsy is a very interesting question. Um, for some genetic cases, we understand the mutations, but for most cases, we don't understand the cause. And um, oftentimes, you know, it's thought that um, injuries to the brain could precipitate seizures and epilepsy, or severe uh, fevers in infancy can also precipitate seizures. But for most uh, people with epilepsy, especially uh, the type of epilepsy we're studying in adults called temporal lobe epilepsy, um, the cause is not well known in most people. Now, the, the problem is that, um, and partly because we don't understand the cause, uh, despite the existence of dozens of anti-seizure drugs on the market, uh, there, there's still over a third of people with epilepsy that continue to have their seizures and are not responding to the drugs. That's called drug-resistant epilepsy. And there is a great need for alternatives to help folks in this class because these seizures, no matter what type of seizure you have, whether it's focal or generalized, it can be total, totally disabling to quality of life. And people have a difficult time working and driving a car and uh, living independently and doing the things that they really want to do. Now, it's obvious to someone standing next to someone having a seizure that they're having a seizure. You might not understand it yourself at the time. Uh, but there has to be other ways that we can diagnose that, in fact, these are epileptic seizures. What can we do there? Right. So usually people know when they've had a seizure, um, they become quite uh, tired afterwards and confused. And, of course, if they're in the room with a loved one or a friend, um, someone else can can alert them that they've just had one. Um, and then there's often a period afterwards where there's a recovery time needed before people can go about their daily lives again. Um, and so they can be um, quite striking. And um, of course, this will alert somebody to go see their physician. Um, and then physicians will typically refer to a specialist at an epilepsy center to be evaluated. And this is where uh, they'll ask a number of questions about the types of seizures, the feelings that you're having. And by virtue of how you're feeling when you're having your seizure, um, that helps the clinicians to identify and diagnose what type of epilepsy it is. But then, after that, they will complement the uh, workup with electroencephalography, EEG, uh, where they will put electrodes on the scalp in the beginning, and they will look for where the seizures are coming from and what types of seizures and how severe. And then, of course, they'll do um, imaging uh, by MRI, uh, sometimes MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, sometimes uh, PET scanning. Uh, positron emission tomography um, to try to better localize where the seizures are coming from because where the seizures originate is typically where they're most damaging. And this can have a damaging effect on the tissue of the brain in that part of the brain, and it will show up on uh, an MRI scan. And this is, in temporal lobe epilepsy, a big problem. Uh, and it, it's called temporal lobe sclerosis, which is a scarring of that part of the brain where the seizures originate from. So in addition to being horrendous in itself of having these seizures, as you increase having seizures, you're increasingly doing damage to the brain. 
That's correct. The longer you have your epilepsy, it's well known. You have a higher incidence for comorbidities, other types of illnesses and uh, symptoms such as memory loss. Um, up to half of people with drug-resistant epilepsy develop dementia. Um, it, it, it becomes a huge problem. People can have high anxiety. They can have alterations in their mood. And obviously, if you're not able to have the, um, the quality of life that you desire, um, that, that puts people in a depressed state. So there are all other types of um, secondary uh, illnesses that result from the epilepsy that when it goes untreated. And it can be permanent, irreversible damage to the brain that just gets worse and worse over time and uh, makes it more difficult for people to go about their lives. Now, before we get to exactly what Nerona is doing, we need to talk about a term that we actually all learned during the pandemic, uh, cytokine. After the COVID virus attacked our lungs or whatever it was attacking, a cytokine storm would come as an immune response on this attack. And it was the cytokine storm that was way too aggressive and put our lives in danger. But there are all different kinds of cytokines and they need to be in balance. This is what you're telling me. I'm saying I'm saying it very confidently, but <laughs> tell, tell me what uh, tell me what I'm listening to here. No, exactly. Um, you know, cytokine is the top of type of molecular messenger that gets communicated through the blood and, of course, is highly relevant in the immune system. Um, in the brain, those molecule uh, messengers are called neurotransmitters, and those are what uh, the nerve cells called neurons use to communicate information through the network, which helps us um, with our with our cognition and you know, our consciousness. And... Um, there's a delicate balance of these neurotransmitters in a normally healthy functioning brain. Um, and there's really two main types of neurotransmitters simplistically in our brains. There's an excitatory one and an inhibitory one. The excitatory one is called glutamate. The inhibitory one is called GABA. And they need to be exquisitely balanced um, to maintain a healthy functioning nervous system. And when they get out of whack, uh, such as when, when epilepsy uh, begins um, or during a seizure, you have too much excitation and not enough inhibition. So what does science know about this in relation to epilepsy? Well, we know that most of the seizure drugs work by dampening down uh, the, the electrical activity and dampening down um, how the nerve cells uh, function, turning down their activity as sort of dampeners, breaks of the, of the nervous system, if you will. Um, and they do that in different ways, depending on the type of drug. But one of the most successful anti-seizure drugs is called the benzodiazepine, which is maybe the most familiar type is diazepam or Valium. Um, and that can be a very effective seizure suppressant. Um, and that works by, by boosting the GABA, boosting the inhibition. Um, and that's typically frontline for acute seizure attacks if you were to go to the emergency room with a seizure attack. And it works very, very well in that emergency setting, but it does not work very well. And it's not well indicated in the chronic long-term cases because these drugs are taken orally by mouth and they go everywhere. And they have, they, they just don't go where the seizure starts. They're going to the entire nervous system and body and causing off-target side effects, adverse effects um, on other parts of the body. And the main side effects are uh, fatigue, uh, sedation, sleepiness, uh, and of course, addiction and tolerance that develop. And so they're not well maintained 
in, in the uh, long-term chronic care setting and not very effective for people with drug-resistant epilepsy. So what is Neurona's big idea? So our idea at Neurona with our first product is to develop a cell therapy that is a cell that produces the GABA and secretes the GABA. And it's a cell that's actually a nerve cell, a neuron that would normally be there in the brain, in those parts of the brain where the seizures begin. And we know that there's not enough of those cells and not enough of that GABA uh, in, in sites of seizure onset. And so our idea is rather than putting the GABA in everywhere, we're going to use the cells that have the GABA and we're going to put those cells and the GABA right precisely into the place in the brain where the seizures begin. And this way we can maintain the effectiveness without those diffuse side effects. Well, we know you had to do a lot of work to say, okay, not only for yourselves, but for the FDA, we're going to, we're really going to try this. And, uh, and you have, you've actually started trials and, uh, and, and tell us about them. And you've actually already implanted it in one subject. That's right. And um, this is decades in the making. It goes back to early discoveries that we made at the benchtop at the University of California, San Francisco, and then led uh, eventually to uh, Nerona's launch uh, in 2015. And now, seven years later, after a ton of rigorous benchtop laboratory testing, we're now at the point where the FDA has allowed us to go forward in the first human patients. Um, and so the first trial that the FDA has cleared just a few months ago is in this exact same population we've been talking about. It's people that have drug-resistant temporal lobe epilepsy, where you can see the part of the brain that's damaged on the MRI. So we know exactly where to implant the GABAergic cells. Uh, and these cells are called interneurons. And we go in there uh, and we use MRI to guide and implant the cells directly into that part of the brain. And the cells are intended to, and this is a one-time procedure, um, the cells are intended to last long-term uh, and provide the GABA and to become part of the network and to restore balance to that part of the brain and quiet the seizure storm. Uh, now, um, we did treat our first patient uh, three months ago, and we're excited to say that the patient has been doing very well thus far. Um, there have been no serious or uh, severe adverse events, side effects reported to date. Uh, and the um, effect on seizure reduction, albeit early, um, and, and obviously we need to test this in additional people, um, but so far it looks very encouraging where this person was having over 30 seizures per month on average before the cell therapy was administered. And since the cell therapy was administered, they've only had four seizures in the last three months. So we're very excited so far for how this is going. Uh, we're cautiously optimistic that it will continue. And um, this, the, the FDA and, and the safety board that monitors the trial uh, just recently cleared safety on this first subject um, this past week. And uh, we are now allowed to continue enrolling patients, which the uh, the second person will be treated very, very soon. So tell us about the rollout. You did one. Now you're going to do another. I mean, you can't do one at a time out in, into infinity. How, how are you doing this? So the, the with any first in human trial, the, the primary objective is to determine safety. 
With safety being paramount, understandably, uh, we want to have a stagger between patients to make sure it's safe before we put the cells into additional uh, people with drug-resistant epilepsy. So um, we have the second one coming, and then we will wait another two months. The safety board will review the data, and assuming that it's safe, they will allow us to go in to the next three patients all around the same time to complete the first dosing group. This is all open label, which means the, the, the patients know that they're getting the cell therapy. Um, and um, after these first five patients, assuming it goes well, we will then next year begin to treat people with the same type of epilepsy, but at a higher dose where we're putting in even more of the inhibitory cells. Besides observing uh, how many seizures they have as a result of this and observing, I know that you're looking for two months in terms of safety, but you're continually going to be tracking these people, obviously. Uh, what other things are you looking at? Are you going to be doing MRIs? I mean, how are you examining what's going on in the brain? Yes, we are using other measures. Um, first of all, there is um, a contrast dye um, so that during the implant of the cells, we can see the cells going into that part of the brain to confirm that they're put into the right spot, precisely into the right spot. And we had that on the first uh, case, and it, it's really fantastic to see the cells being delivered on target in real time in this way. Uh, and then we use MRI at every follow-up visit to make sure that there are no structural uh, abnormalities or safety issues happening with the cells. Um, obviously, these cells, they, there's no stem cells in the product, even though they come from uh, stem cells. Um, there is no residual, um, you know, what's called a, a, a precursor cell that could divide. But that's an important safety measure in this trial where they're making sure that there is no new tumor formation or anything of that type, uh, which you would see by MRI. Um, so MRI is a huge uh, piece of the follow-up, as well as a related uh, technique called MR spectroscopy, which looks at um, metabolites, uh, little molecules in the tissue, like the cytokines that can change due to inflammation uh, and also due to seizures. And so we can track, uh, we, we hope to track the activity of the cell therapy uh, non-invasively with this MR, with these MR methods. And then there's EEG, of course. And EEG is used to look at how many um, electrical spikes there are um, in this part of the brain over time. And encouragingly, with this first uh, subject, um, they were having about a discharge per minute before the procedure. And so far, they haven't had any detected in the first follow-up. So again, you know, early days, but encouraging. Now, when you say discharge, you're talking about like an electrical discharge in your brain? That's right. That's right. An electrical event. Yes. Something that's showing that it's a, it's a over overly excited and therefore we're on our way to a seizure. So we're that's seeing right. a calming in the brain. Uh, this is this is this is real science. You're at the edge. You're at the edge of science here. Um, this has been an amazing journey, uh, but it hasn't just been about epilepsy. You're thinking it has applicability in other. Uh, situations in other medical conditions as well. That's right. And we think that this hyper excitable electrical state that you just well described 
is at the root of multiple disorders of the nervous system. And one of the next indications we're pursuing uh, is going to be for Alzheimer's disease. And there's now uh, quite a bit of evidence coming out from clinical studies showing that up to half of people with Alzheimer's disease also have this epileptic-like activity in the same part of the brain, what's called the temporal lobe, which is the memory center of our brains. And that this electrical activity can actually um, potentiate, increase uh, cognitive decline. Um, and people with the signature deteriorate faster. So it seems to be not just a signature, but a signature that has clinical meaning. And now we wanna test whether we can put these inhibitory cells uh, into the same part of the brain in people who have Alzheimer's disease, who also have this epilepsy signature to see if we can slow that progression and hopefully help people improve their quality of life. Now, the, um, the people that have um, this type of um, signature, it, it, it's, it, it's interesting that it's gone undetected for so long because these are not typically convulsive seizures. They're that type that we were describing that's a subconvulsive of focal seizures, um, these electrical discharges that people with Alzheimer's don't know they're having. And so you have to have an EEG, a special type of EEG to actually detect this. And now the technology has advanced in recent years to the point that we're able to run these studies and finally detect this really interesting clue, which may serve as an important uh, biomarker to find people who may respond to this novel cell therapy. Now, I just have a few more questions. One is, did something happen to these people who have epilepsy, this level of epilepsy, uh, to uh, to create this situation? I mean, you mentioned earlier perhaps a, a high fever as you were a child or something like that. Do we know? Most times we don't. Um, in some cases, you do have uh, infantile uh, fevers, um, or uh, uh, injuries that can you know, cause damage in one part of the brain and trigger epilepsy and seizures. But um, many times we don't know the cause. Um, and, and typically for temporal lobe epilepsy, it's uh, most commonly diagnosed in the teenage years. And so it, it happens suddenly out of the blue, and it can happen earlier or later, but most often happens in um, adolescence, teenage years. And um, again, you know, Half of people still have seizures, and it's thought that a third of them are not satisfied with their current level of um, of treatment, you know, with the with the drugs. And and for people that have uh, temporal lobe epilepsy that's resistant to drugs, there is currently one option for some people, and that's a lobectomy to actually remove uh, or destroy with a laser this part of the brain and basically wipe out that excitatory drive that's causing the seizure. And it can work for some people, but it doesn't work for everybody. It works for about half of people that go through with this, but it risks um, significant um, side effects, as, as you'd imagine, uh, to memory for some people, uh, to vision, to mood. Uh, and so it can be quite disabling for some. And some people are not eligible for the lobectomy by virtue of exactly where the seizures are coming from and how many of these uh, focal seizure areas there are in the brain. And these, this is where we think the cell therapy could really provide a complementary option for people that are not inclined or eligible to have the current standard of care. And, and this um, cell therapy that we're developing, of course, is intended to be regenerative, restorative, non-destructive, 
and has the potential to provide this um, this alternative to give those folks some hope. Now, you mentioned that this trial is focusing on uh, people who ha- have uh, temporal lobe epilepsy and who are drug resistant. And uh, you're going over a number of months here, if not, uh, you know, a year or more to go through all of the trial. If if someone or a family member is interested in finding out more or potentially participating in the trial, how do they go about that? Absolutely. We're recruiting 10 people for this first phase of the trial uh, across 20 centers, uh, all in the United States, in different parts of the country. So if um, you or a loved one um, has this type of epilepsy and you think you might be eligible, um, you know, please talk to your physician. And um, you can also go to our website at uh, neuronatx.com, where you can find all the information about the trial. Well, well, Dr. Nicholas, this has been terrific. I hope you'll come back and see us again. Oh, thanks so much, Moira. I just want to also thank the team at Nerona, who's really been a labor of love for these past, uh, you know, uh, seven, eight years working on this. And a lot of contributors, um, both, you know, investors and um, uh, employees and uh, patients and clinical teams all across the country. It takes a village and all of the stakeholders have been very supportive. And I want to also really um, acknowledge the brave people that are taking this therapy for the first time in history, the first cell therapy ever for epilepsy. Um, what a, um, a, a brave, uh, heroic thing that they're doing um, to, uh, of course, help try to help themselves, but to, to help advance the field as well in a very altruistic way. So thanks so much for all of the support all around. Dr. Corey Nicholas is the co-founder and CEO of Neurona Therapeutics. Since the time of this recording, Neurona Therapeutics has treated a second temporal lobe epilepsy patient. More information about the ongoing clinical trials and the company itself is available at neuronatherapeutics.com. That's Neurona, N-E-U-R-O-N-A, neuronatherapeutics.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.